And the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple, for all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. Thank you. You may be seated. I'd just like to ask you to join me in a word of prayer right now. Lord, we, we come to a passage that records for us a very um, well-known circumstance about your history. Uh, Lord, even somewhat fabled the, the whole denial of Peter and how he denied you three times. And Lord, I think sometimes, again, we... we maybe familiar with a story or familiar with an act, or it may even be a part of our cultural vocabulary, but we are jaded sometimes to understand what it is that actually took place and why you have recorded it for us in your word. And so, Lord, I ask today that as we are gathered here, as we are opening up the pages of John's gospel, that you would speak freely, Lord, through your messenger, that you would encourage and strengthen hearts, Lord, that you would help us to see the beauty of what it is that is revealed here. And Lord, allow us to be conformed to what you desire for us to be. Uh, we who are your followers, Lord, desire to be conformed to your son. Those who are still in this pursuit of wondering whether or not there's something to this Jesus or this gospel, Lord, that their eyes would be open, that they would see, uh, Lord, that you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And Lord, that these events are taking place totally and completely in your control and you're pushing toward that wonderful sacrifice lord of yourself upon that cross for us 
And uh, Lord, today, we, we ask for your help and we ask for your guidance in your name. Amen. I want to begin today just by talking a little bit about structure of a text like this. As you know, um, last week we began this passion story, and that was the arrest of Jesus. And if you remember, what we talked about in that particular passage was how, how Jesus stepped forward, how it wasn't so much that the soldiers came to get Jesus, but that Jesus came and presented himself to the soldiers who were there, and he stepped forward, and he initiated, and he made it happen. So he wasn't running and cowering from them. He was purposely beginning the hour of his suffering. So now when we get to this passage, we begin at verse 12, um, what I'm calling Jesus' arrest and journey to Annas. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. And remember, there's some irony in that, that the, the one that could speak and it would happen is now arrested and bound by these people. Here they are with the Messiah, the Savior of the world, and Jesus is ushering in even his own arrest and his binding. And so he steps forward into the garden in complete control, and into the darkness he is led to Annas. And then we pick up at verse 13. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Now John here is incredibly accurate in his recording because he identifies Annas as the one to whom Jesus was going to go, and then he also identifies Caiaphas as the high priest. Now, what's interesting is if you go to verse 19 in our text, what does it say? It says, um, the high priest then questioned Jesus. But that's not Caiaphas, that's Annas. And so you, if you're just kind of looking at this the first time, you may be asking yourself, well, how can there be two high priests? Well, here's what happened. Annas came uh, to the, the position of high priest in A.D. 6. It is typically a lifelong commitment, a lifelong position. But the Roman leadership in that particular area did not like Annas um, for a particular reason. His name was Valus, or Valerius Gratus, and he's right before the person we know as Pilate. And so he removed him in A.D. 15. So from 86 to 8015, Annas was the high priest. And the people did not like what happened to him, and so the people actually had great respect for Annas, although he was not officially the high priest at that point in time. But we also know from history that he had five sons who served as high priest, and Caiaphas, as it's written here, is his son-in-law as he is serving high priest. So there's almost this honorary high priest status. And he was the high priest. And so when John refers to him here as the high priest, he is accurate, but he's also recognizing that officially Caiaphas is the one who is that high priest. Now, it's also important to note here that John just kind of reminds the reader that Caiaphas made a very, very important statement. Turn back to chapter 11 and verse 50. Chapter 11 and verse 50. Jesus, having... Um, raised Lazarus from the dead, um, now interacts with, um, well, they hear about what happens, 
And they ultimately, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leadership, ultimately want to put Jesus to death. And they're talking about this. And you pick it up in verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the, and, and, and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our pla- place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. And what he means by that is, it's better that we take care of him. And so they conspired together to put Jesus to death. As far as they were concerned, he is guilty, and they send out, if you look at chapter Uh, Chapter 11 and verse 57. Now, chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. And verse 53 says, so from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. That was the attitude of the Jewish Sanhedrin leadership at that point in time. Jesus's sentence had already been given. So actually, any thought of a trial is really a sham. Okay? And what's going on here then is Jesus is being sought, he's being arrested, but Caiaphas is talking about if we get rid of Jesus, we save the nation. But prophetically here, John brings us back now in verse 14, it was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. And ultimately, we know that what does Jesus do? He does go to a cross and he does die for the people. And there is spiritual and national significance because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. So there's a lot of irony in these words. Now, enter Peter and also John. Verse 15, Simon Peter followed Jesus. We're back now in our text. And so did another disciple. Now, interestingly enough, there is debate as to who this another disciple is or other disciple is, but if you are a reader of John's gospel, um, you will recognize that John, when referring to himself, uses expressions like the disciple whom Jesus loved. He doesn't specifically identify himself. And so I just truly believe that the person that we have here is John himself um, following Jesus who has been arrested. And then as they get to where Annas is, we have this parallel roads that kind of part and then then function together, that move on together. And here's where the drama of the story then begins to really unfold. What began as a unified story, the arrest and his journey, now as they arrive, um, becomes divided into really two stories. All right, look, if you would, please, at... uh, Verse 15 again, since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside the door so that the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. So here's the picture. There's something happening inside with Annas, in the home of Annas, you might say. That is where Jesus is. There's something happening outside in the courtyard, and that is where Peter is. You get the drama unfolding, and as we go, if we read through this passage, you'd see it starts with, here's Jesus, here's Peter. Here's Jesus, here's Peter. There's this kind of, you know, 
this, this weaving going on. The best way I can describe it, and you'll laugh at this, but this is what came to mind, but it, it helped me kind of comprehend it. Uh, I grew up watching Batman. You guys ever grew up watching? I'm not talking about, you know, the dark Batman. I'm talking about the, the pow, kerplunk, <laughs> biff, bam version of Batman. And of course, you know, the villain has someone tied up and they're laughing sinisterly, uh, in a sinister way. And the, the, the narrator says, and meanwhile, back in Gotham City, okay? So there's this kind of meanwhile, back in the courtyard kind of dynamic going on. There's something going on inside with Jesus. There's something going on outside with Peter. And they're both very significant. And listen, a narrator doesn't usually do this. So you have to ask yourself, what is going on here? Why would John describe these events kind of going on at the same time? And there is a reason. And part of that reason is to reveal to us something very, very important. Here's the question that this text is asking us to consider. When you are asked about what you believe, how will you answer what will you answer, how will you behave, and what will your answer prove about you? Jesus goes into Annas, and he's going to be asked a question. Peter is going into the courtyard, and he's going to be asking or being asked a question. The question is, how do you answer that question? What do you say? How do you behave? And then ultimately, what does it reveal about you? So we'll first see this question applied to Jesus, then to Peter, and then we're going to finally ask those questions of ourselves. Okay? So, first section then is this, Jesus on trial. Jesus on trial. Now, I'm not using the word trial in, this, in its formal sense. I'm using the word trial in the sense that it's talking about Jesus is going through a time of testing. What we really have here is a, an unofficial police interrogation of Jesus before he goes to trial. You want to get that picture, all right? Get the person we just arrested. Let's put him in a room. Let's try and force some evidence and some facts out of him before the lawyer comes. It's that kind of context. This should not be taking place as far as Jewish law is concerned, as far as a trial of an individual. But it is. He has already been determined that he is guilty but now they have to amass the evidence to provide a legal sentence. So his arrest was illegal. It took place at night. Jewish law forbade that. It was through the agency and accomplice of an informer, which was inappropriate. There was no formal charge against Jesus. Now Jesus is brought and is interrogated, and that was illegal. The high priest had no business interfering and jumping in and talking to the prisoner, his job was to seek out the, acu or the accuracy of the testimony against Jesus. Only the witnesses could speak in a Jewish trial, not the person being accused. So first of all, I want you to notice then what I'm calling the illegitimacy of a shameful question. Now this will all kind of wrap together. You'll, you'll understand it as we move along. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. But we know that this process was a sham. We know that Jesus was already guilty until proven innocent, but they weren't going to allow him to be proven innocent. 
the opportunity for innocence is never given. The question never asked, but should have been asked is this. How is it that you claim to be the Christ, the Son of God? Tell us. So Jesus answers the question. Look at verse 19 again. The high priest questioned Jesus about the disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him saying, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in the synagogue and in the temple will all the Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Let me summarize what he's saying here. Jesus is responding to the high priest's question by saying, in all my teaching, I've been open. I've been available to the Jews. You might even say to the world, he uses that expression. I've been truthful. I have been clear. If you want to find out what I said, go talk to the people that were there, that listened. Now, he leaves no room for any question about any secret teaching or secret kind of movement that's going on. The point is, Jesus has been very, very clear in declaring about who he is. He's been very, very open about what um, he is saying about the people that he's speaking to. He's been very, very honest about what he expects of them. The evidence is out there. And Jesus' very answer to the question reveals that what, God, uh, what is going on here um, is really only a, a, a shameful sham. They're just pushing this thing to the point so that Jesus will say something that will incriminate himself because they really don't have anything else to hold on to. But Jesus is stepping forward in this interrogation and he's pushing two points home. And just, just hear this, that you have had plenty of time to gather the evidence against me. Where is it that Jesus said that he spoke openly and publicly? What are the locations that are mentioned here? The synagogues and the temple. Who might be in the synagogues and in the temple? Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, high priests. The very people and the very person that is coming asking him the question has had plenty of opportunity to hear what Jesus has said. He's been open. Secondly, you should be interrogating witnesses, the ones who know what I have said. And Jesus here is pushing Annas here by saying, listen, you should not be asking me these questions. You need to be asking witnesses because if a trial is going to be appropriate, if it's going to be right, it's the witnesses that are going to bear testimony against me. So go talk to the witnesses. Now, I've been open. I've been clear. I've been public. Everyone's heard it. The evidence is out there for you to listen to. But they weren't seeking to be legal. They were seeking to get rid of Jesus. And so ultimately they embraced something that was illegal. So verse 21, why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I have said to them. They know what I have said. They are the witnesses. They are the ones that you should go to. So that's the, the, um, the illegitimacy of a shameful question. All right? Open, available, truthful, um, clear. But then there's what I'm calling the, the irony of a striking question. A little play on words there, but verse 22. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, is that how you answer the high priest? Now, when I first you know, read through this passage, I thought, man, what's really going on here? Jesus is just kind of saying, hey, you know, 
This is what I've done. But when you, you, you begin to study the flow and you, when you begin to study the Jewish law, you realize Jesus is confronting Annas. He's confronting the methodology. He's confronting the fact that what you are doing is an illegal act. It is an illegal process. And what you need to be doing is chasing down those witnesses. So he is really challenging Annas here. And so this official here is responding to this challenge by Jesus to Annas, who is the high priest, saying, is this how you answer the high priest? And again, my first thought is, is this how you treat the king of kings? That's the irony that's going on here. That you would respond this way to the one who claims to be the Christ, the son of God. But Jesus pushes the ball back in the court of the high priest. Jesus answered them. Again, verse 23, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? You see that? He's, he's emphasizing here the witness, the witness, the witness. If I'm wrong, bear witness to that. But if I'm right, why did you strike me? You have no business doing that. So Jesus, once again, is confronting his accusers to seek the testimony of these witnesses, to examine the evidence against him. Ultimately, Jesus is calling for a just trial. And he knows he's not going to get it. But he's confronting the, uh, the events that are taking place. Now, Annas here, as the high priest, represents Judaism, the faith of, of God's people since Abraham and up to that point. The Jews had experienced many blessings through the years. And if you just... Just take a cursory look through the Old Testament and just remind yourself of all the things that God had done for those people. Wonderful victories, in particular at the Red Sea and the conquest of Canaan. Great leaders like Moses and Samuel and David. Prophetic voices like Elijah and Amos and Isaiah and Jeremiah. They were God's covenant people. They were God's special, unique, privileged people. And the promise of the Messiah and the kingdom was given to them. So here is the one who embraces all of that as this high priest before Jesus, who is the Messiah, the King of Kings. But rather fall down on his face and worship him, he's trying to use every trick in the book to coerce this guilty verdict so they can get rid of Jesus. Now what evidence would Annas have to look for? What could he look for? Just... Just here, just here are seven things that I think that we could say that, <clears throat> that uh, Annas, if he really wanted to find out, had the data, had the information, and it would be very, very clear about this Messiah. The Messiah, first of all, was to be born in Bethlehem, Micah 5.2. That's what Scripture says. Annas, being the high priest, would have the Old Testament Scriptures. He would know it pretty significantly, I would think. All right? And Jesus was born where? In Bethlehem. All right? Secondly, the Messiah was to be born of a virgin. Isaiah 7:14. Jesus was born of a virgin. Messiah was to be born of the house of David. Again, 2 Samuel 7 or Isaiah 11, 1 and 2. Jesus was born of the house of David. You could even go to the genealogies in the book of the in, in the beginning of the Gospels there. All right? Number four, the Messiah was to be preceded by a forerunner who would be like Elijah. And Jesus was preceded by who? John the Baptist, who had already presented himself and even 
those who were there part of the Sanhedrin recognized that he was very much like Elijah. Number five, the Messiah was to do many great miracles. Isaiah chapter 61, 1 and 2. And Jesus performed many miracles. Miracles that they could not explain. Miracles that were proven to be true. Here's this person born blind, but now can see. How is that possible? Here is Lazarus, dead, days. Jesus brings him back to life. How is that possible? This is not some kind of a you know, um, you know, conjurer of tricks. These are real things that they couldn't find any answers for. Number six, the Messiah would make a public entrance into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. Zechariah, chapter 9, verse 9. Jesus had come to do that too. And he had done that. Number seven, the Messiah would be betrayed by a close friend for 30 pieces of silver. Psalm 41.9, Zechariah 11.12. Now, I'm just, I'm just rattling these off just to remind you that if you are the high priest of a nation that is steeped in what is known as Judaism, trust me, Annas would know these things. But he chooses to set them aside. The blindness of Judaism at that point was such that they could not even see the Messiah before them. They couldn't even see the signs. They couldn't connect the dots. The evidence was there, but it was ignored. And having failed the Inquisition, look at verse 24. Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. The bottom line here is this. Jesus stood faithful in the face of his accusers and denies nothing. He doesn't say, he doesn't backtrack at all. He says, no, I spoke in the open. I spoke in the synagogue. I spoke in the temple. I was very open. I was very truthful. In fact, you can ask anyone that was there what I said. And more than likely, there were plenty that Annas could turn to that was very, very close to him, people that, that were there, part of the Jewish leadership, that could have said, yeah, this is what he said. All right? So that's Jesus. That's what's going on on the inside. Now we get to going, what's going on on the outside. And I realize, as soon as we turn to Peter, we say, okay, I understand Jesus. We talk to Peter, we start getting nervous. We start shifting in our seats, right? We start, oh, well, where is this going to go? This is kind of uncomfortable to me because um, I know what's going to happen here, and it's not a pretty picture. Well, um, there's some things that we need to think about here before we jump ahead into this text, okay? I want to remind you of some things concerning Peter. Go back to John chapter 13, if you would, please. <clears throat> beginning at verse 36. Simon Peter said to him, to Jesus, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. Now this is all part of the interaction that Jesus has with Peter, and Jesus here is foretelling the events of Peter's denial. Okay? Now I want you to turn over to Luke's gospel. Luke is right before John's gospel in chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. Um, all the gospels 
give account of, of these events. And they add some different light along the way. We're, we're mainly focusing on John, um, but I think it's helpful here as we, as we think about what happens with Peter in particular um, before these events take place. Look, if you would please, at Luke chapter 22, beginning at verse 31, and we'll look at verse 32 also. Simon, Simon, that's Peter. Behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and what you have turned, uh, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Now, what are you talking about, Jesus? You know, but P Jesus here is is reminding Peter and telling Peter, listen, you're going to be going through a trial. You're going to be going through a, a real rough time, and it is going to be something related to your faith. But End of that verse, 32. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. God, even when we sin, when we fail, when we turn our back against him, uses that purposely to fashion and shape us for other things, for greater things. And ultimately, that is the big picture of Peter. We think back of Peter during Jesus' ministry as being that one who was always championing the cause and saying, yeah, I'll be there and I'll do this. And if you remember in chapter 18, verse 10, he takes on these, you know, over 200 soldiers by cutting off the ear of Malchus, right? I'm going to be there. I'm going to fight for you. And yet we find him now in, the, in, in this, this courtyard imploding. And friends, I don't know about you, but I have had times in my life when I have imploded. Anyone here want to raise your hand but not raise your hand? You know what I'm talking about? We can be honest. There's a lot about Peter that we see in ourselves. But the wonderful promise here is that Jesus knew all about it. Now, that isn't to say, oh, go ahead and implode. It's to say, Peter didn't hear the warning, but we should. Now, let's just take a moment now to begin to unpack what is going on here with these three denials. And I'm going to ask you as we go through these to look for three things. Number one, I want you to look for any progression that you think of. And the kind of progression I'm thinking about is the kind of Psalm 1-1 progression where it says, blessed is the man that doesn't walk in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of the scornful. That progression, walking, standing, sitting, that kind of association progression. Just look for that. Secondly, um, any kind of association with whom does Peter identify? And then, are there any specific word choices that John is, is recording for us that just jump out and, and, and seem to be saying something? Just, just kind of think about those three things, progression, association, and word choice. Now, let's look at the first denial. It's this encounter with the servant girl. Verse 17, the servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. This is a question that really only has one answer. It's the kind of question that is stated where the expected answer is no. And if you don't answer no, there's something strange and weird about you. Okay? And so he responds by saying, I am not. But read the text one more time. The girl says... You 
also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? As if to say that the person that she just saw, John, bringing Peter and getting Peter into here was one who was a follower of Jesus. But Peter, you're not also one of those followers of Jesus, are you? Oh, wait a second. I mean, he he was a disciple with John. You kind of get the level here of of what's going on. Peter is, is, is faced now with with an answer that he must give. Now, I don't know why Peter would deny Jesus when John was just associated with him. But sometimes there are these things called questions that trick us up. And so he begins and he answers and says, no, I'm not. Now, we move on in the story, verse 18, we come to the servants and the officers. So he says, no, I'm not. Verse 18, continue reading. Now the servants and the officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves, which is another reminder that this is all taking place at night. Peter also with them standing was warming himself. Jump down to verse 25 because the break in there is the encounter of Jesus inside. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself so that they said to him, they, that would be the servants and the officials, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. Exact same question. First, the question was asked by an individual, and now the question is being asked by a group of people. Pressure's on. Not just one person, but now this is a group of people. And you think about it. If if Peter was just saying to himself, why did I say I am not to this servant girl? I mean, she's a servant girl. She's she's manning the door, and I'm coming in. She asked that question. Why did I say no? If he was even thinking that way, now was his opportunity to make things right, right? But he says, I am not. You just kind of begin to get this idea of what happens when you say something that is not a truth and you're trying to cover up for that truth now and it just gets worse and worse and it's better just to kind of go along with it to save face at that point in time than it is actually to correct it and to stand up and be an object of people's ridicule. Then we have the servant of the high priest. I mean, this, this only gets worse. Verse 26, one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once the rooster crowed. The pressure is building up, and Peter is really sweating around the fire now, having denied this this question from the girl, having now denied this question from the group. Now, so much so has he denied this, we find that in the parallel accounts, in Matthew's gospel, in Mark's gospel, that Peter is said to be invoking a curse on himself and to swear. Now, don't think of that swearing in our contemporary colloquial sense, all right? He's not using four-letter words here. What he's doing, though, is he is, he is invoking on himself a curse. What he's saying is this, I am telling you by my life, I'm telling you, in no, um, you know, in a complete and total, uh, full way, there is absolutely no way that I am associated with this person. I am bringing a curse on myself if what I'm telling you is not true. And I'm swearing that what I'm telling you is true. Now, what, what started out as simply a question and a no answer has moved along to him being adamantly disassociated with Jesus. 
And of course, we know what happens at that point in time from the other Gospels. John doesn't record it, but first of all, the rooster crows, right? Jesus looks at Peter, happened to catch an eye, and he runs out weeping because he knows that he has just denied his master. Now, I just want to go back again. This word progression. There seems to be two kinds of progression going on here. The first progression would be a progression in Peter's denials, moving further and further away from Jesus. There's a second progression, a progression of the level of witnesses claiming that Peter knows Jesus. You have an individual, you have a group, and then you actually have an eyewitness, a specific eyewitness. You may have had a general eyewitness before, but now, hey, listen, I saw you cut the ear off of, you know, this is the kind of witness that we have here. No, I, 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 you were there. I saw you. So we have this kind of progression that is going on. Secondly, this association. Now, this might be taking a little bit of a liberty, and I want to be careful here, but it's interesting here that, you know, that Peter is now warming himself by the fire. You have to ask yourself the question, well, what was the other option? seems natural if you're cold, you're going to go around the fire. But if you're going to go around the fire and you're going to hang out with those who are around the fire, does that mean that you become one of them or does that mean you still maintain your integrity and your identification as one who truly follows Jesus? And there is great pressure when we, we put ourselves in the context of, of being warmed by the fire that we become like those who are around us. Okay? We don't want to be identified as the weird one. We don't want to be identified as kind of that, that strange person. All right? So we must ask ourselves the question, have we been warming ourselves around the fire of our culture so that we are more at home with them than we are with Jesus? Then there is this word choice. There's this word choice. Now specifically, it is ironic and seemingly purposeful that Jesus is identifying himself in this gospel by the expression, what? I am. But here, when Peter denies Jesus, he says, I am not. Now, you just have to think through John's theological content here. Why does he choose to use the things that he chooses to use? To present here that there is a contrast between Jesus and Peter. Inside, we have the Messiah who has been arrested and is now being interrogated primarily for declaring, I am. Outside, we have a disciple of Jesus being interrogated and who is declaring, I am not. Pretty ironic as far as narratives go. John has constructed a dramatic contrast here wherein Jesus, stand, Jesus stands up to the questioners and denies nothing, but here we have Peter who cowers before his questioners and denies everything. Here's Peter the follower of Jesus, who denies emphatically, dramatically, and boldly with an invo invoked curse on himself that he does not know this one who is Jesus. Now, this is not finished simply here, because I think we, we, we step back, and we, we revisit this passage now, and we ask ourselves the question, what about us? What about us on trial? Sorry, I didn't give those to you, but you had them. What about us on trial? 
all right? What, what is it that God wants to teach us? What does he want to share um, with us about the kind of trial that we will experience? Anyone here ever been under pressure because of your faith? All right, I see a couple of hands there. Some of you are under pressure right now to have to build a fire here maybe and that'll get it out of you. Um, you know, this is, this is not a small issue for us at all. This is a real issue. And we may not see ourselves exactly like Peter. We're not out and out, you know, demanding and being bullied. No, I don't know Jesus. But there is this, this subtlety of this, this question and this challenge that is flowing out of this text that we have to ask ourselves some questions about. You know, how many Christians live with a continual sense of failure because of their inability or unwillingness to stand clearly for Christ in their public lives? Do your neighbors know that you're believers? Do your coworkers know that you're believers? And I don't mean because you carry a lunchbox that says, repent, John 3.16. I'm talking because of how you live and the kind of decisions you make and the kind of relationship you have with them and the kind of way that you, you, you go through life and you're relying on the Lord Jesus Christ and you're, you're, you know, you're, you're speaking about him, not in, a, in an abusive way, but just kind of this is where life is. I'm trusting Jesus with this trial that we're having at home or you know, I'm going on a trip and I'm just praying that God will provide safety or whatever it might be. You're, it's, it's clear because of what you say and the things that you do that that's who you are. Now, in this passage, we have seen the hardened rejection of Jesus as the Messiah by those who are clearly unbelievers and antagonistic to his claims and teaching. But we've also seen the wobbling denial of a disciple whose life had been turned upside down by the one he called master. Now, think about this. Peter was there as the designated leader of the disciples. He was there when Jesus performed miracles. He was there when Jesus was teaching, not just publicly, but also as he gathered with his disciples in private places, and he, he would interact with them. He would dialogue with them. Peter was there watching Jesus on this Mount of Transfiguration. I mean, you can go on and on. Peter was there, Peter was there, but all of a sudden, boom, because of some pressure, he denies Jesus. But it's clear, hear this, it's clear that Peter loves his master. He was willing to lay down his life, I believe, what happened in John 18 there in the garden. He was following Jesus after he was arrested. Just think about this. You know, a lot of flack is given to Peter, but all right, there's Peter and there's John. Where are the other disciples? Boom, scattered around, we were assuming. But Peter is still following. At least he's still following, right? So what can we learn about the trial that we face as believers of Christ? What can we learn about our particular trial? And here's, I guess, what I would like to say. In the context of opposition, we will constantly be pressured to disassociate ourselves with what we believe. In the context of opposition, we will constantly be pressured to disassociate ourselves with what we believe. And I want to go back to verse 19 because I think verse 19 pulls out for us some, some arenas that we battle as far as our association or disassociation. There can, this could be on different levels. 
as far as how much we want to buy into this, how much we want to embrace it, or how little we want to embrace it. But the question here in verse 19, the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. But this is also a question about Jesus. And so these are three categories that I think just flow out of this text that are worth us paying attention to. So the text reveals three three areas of disassociation. First of all, a disassociation with Jesus as Messiah. What do you believe about who Jesus is? You're not one of those people that actually believes that there is a God in heaven, are you? You don't actually think that Jesus is the Messiah come to save his people, do you? Now, most people can put up with a secular Jesus, the kind and loving and accepting, no one gets into trouble for their sin kind of Jesus, a good man that for for some reason history has chosen to bring to light as an example. But you don't actually think that Jesus is God, do you? To tell people that you embrace the Jesus that Scripture reveals and there will be a different attitude toward you. You'll be laughed at and you'll be ridiculed as a simpleton. You'll be pitied and someone, as someone weak who needs a crutch to get them through life. You will be pushed aside as someone who cannot be trusted with sound judgment. How can we trust your thinking if you believe that foolishness? So it's easy to present a soft, more palatable Jesus simply to avoid conflict and to avoid being ostracized or ultimately not being liked or accepted. We struggle with this, friends. And this can happen just with a coworker. This can actually happen even with another believer who just doesn't want to be as firm or as strong about embracing Jesus and affirming Jesus for who he really is. And all the questions I'm asking here are questions that have this automatic answer no. And if you answer yes, then there's something wrong with you. Secondly, a disassociation with followers of the Messiah. Hear this. You're not one of those weird hypocrites that thinks that going to church will bring you closer to God, are you? You're not one of those gullible saints who actually thinks that giving to the church is a good idea, are you? Now, under pressure, we are likely to distance ourselves from the body of Christ, from the church. Let me just pause here and say this. What is presented as Christ, as, uh, say, as the church, under Christ, isn't necessarily the true church, right? I do not associate myself with a particular church that goes and pickets every gay person that dies. You understand what I'm saying? There's a reasonableness to this. But when there are genuine believers around the world, how do we respond to those who are genuine believers? Even if we see things differently, how do we 
maybe as, as a church, we're a Bible church. How do we associate with maybe a church that is a different denomination that would, em, that would embrace maybe some methods of practice or methods of church organization and structure? How would we interact with those people? I would hope that we would recognize that they're fellow brothers and sisters in Christ who see some things in Scripture a little differently than we do rather than they are the enemy. There needs to be a healthy relationship in our understanding of who truly is part of the body of Christ. But what's going on here is this, this association with followers of the Messiah. When we wander away from Christ, when we have given into sin, when others with whom we are living are ridiculing the faith, there is a tendency to drift away from the gathered family of God. When, when you are marching down a path where you're saying no to God and I want this sin, you don't want to be a part of the family of God. You don't want to be connected with that family of God because you know, depending on the family of God, that your sin will be exposed. Your sin will not be left alone. People will not look away. Not because they hate you, but because they love you. That's what a healthy church is pursuing and doing. But often we drift. We rationalize that all we need is personal faith in Jesus Christ. And we begin to emphasize and speak in terms of the universal church rather than the local church. We begin to pick and choose what parts of Jesus we like and we don't like. We begin to get comfortable with an acceptable religious experience rather than the life, growth, and accountability that the body of Christ brings. Now, is there, is there a little drift that maybe you're experiencing saying, you know what, you know, I want the body of Christ a little bit, but maybe not that much. You want to disassociate a little bit with those who are the followers of Jesus Christ. There's the possibility of that, friends, and it's something that we need to be careful about. The third thing, though, is a disassociation with the teaching of the Messiah. <clears throat> this, is, this is one of the areas that Annas was challenging him on. Aren't you, are you telling me, are you really telling me that you believe that the Bible is God's word? Are you? You don't really believe that you are a sinner in need of a savior, do you? You're not one of those narrow-minded people who actually lives their lives believing what the Bible says. See, these are all questions that are manipulative in nature, that are there to catch you out and to make you feel strange about what you believe and make you question whether or not what you believe is actually true. And much of God's word is not appreciated by our society. It's too exclusive. It's too old-fashioned. It just isn't relevant. It just is plain wrong as far as they're concerned. And there's great pressure in our sophisticated and liberated society to deny that the Bible is inspired, that it's breathed out by God for us. It's too sophisticated to recognize that the Bible is authoritative. In other words, it is spoken by God and is to be listened to and is to be obeyed. Also that it is sufficient, that it is able to speak to and to provide the answers for man's needs. You don't actually believe that, do you? Well, no, I, 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 well, I believe the Bible, but you know, I don't believe that. And we kind of we backpedal and we begin to deny. And these, these denials happen in, in subtle, simple, not as drastic ways. They're just slow little 
you know, whittlings away of our faith. Now I want to kind of wrap our hands around this again and think about this in terms of then, okay, what are we supposed to do? What, what are some things that we can do so that we don't fall in the same way that Peter fell? I think this is just really important. There's a lot more to say about this. I would encourage you to think through this more. Maybe talk about this with, with each other. This would be obviously good for home group discussion. See yourself for who you really are. See yourself in your weakness and fear as someone who struggles with denial and disassociation. Well, that would never happen to me. I would not deny the Lord Jesus Christ. I would always stand true and be faithful to him. Sounds like someone else we just read about, right? Whose name is Peter. You, you get the point here that Peter is here given for us as an example of someone who was totally self-confident. I can do this, and I can do this, and I can do this. Oh, no, no, Jesus, I, I know you're saying that I will deny you, but I'm not going to deny you. I will die for you. And what Jesus is saying is a warning. It's a sweet, wonderful warning for Peter. But Peter, because of his self-sufficiency, does not hear the warning. He didn't pay attention to what Jesus was saying. He pressed on in his own strength. Now, we, we admire Peter's resolve. But we are saddened that he would not listen to Jesus. We're saddened to watch Peter implode in such a way. If only he had paid attention to what Jesus was saying about his character all along. So the camera then moves from Peter and turns around and faces us. Jesus speaks clearly to us through his word. He gets our attention. He points out our sin. He communicates the gospel. He warns us that if we don't deal with it, we will have a rough road ahead. But we choose not to believe him. We choose to believe that we can overcome that sinful struggle by ourselves. God has gifted us with his word to show us our sinfulness so that in doing so, we would rely on him as our savior. My friends, Peter did not do that. He did not take advantage of the warnings that he was getting from Jesus. And the question for us is, are we taking advantage of the warnings that we are receiving as we are under the word of God daily, in church, in Bible studies? Are we paying attention? Or do we just say, you know what? Yeah, it's there, but I can handle it. I can do this. And then all of a sudden, whop, we fall down. We move away. We step away from embracing fully that Jesus is our Lord and Savior on a practical level. Secondly, I would say this. See Christ for who he really is. Now, one of the things that flows out of this passage is everything you need to know about Christ is there. That's what he's saying to Annas, right? Everything you need to know, I have already said multiple times. Seek it out. Find out what it was said. And that's the theme of John's gospel, is it not? Presenting evidence so that you can believe, and having believed, you will have life. John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. That's the, that theme verse. I'm giving you this evidence so that you can have life. See Jesus for who he really is. Don't just settle for 
this understanding, that, uh, this soft understanding of Jesus. You know, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, but be diligent to know him as he truly is revealed in Scripture. Certainly his character, his compassion, its meekness, its sovereignty, its power, its grace. But he is also the executor of judgment and wrath. You have to have a complete picture of who he is. And there's beauty in that. Don't be afraid of it. But not only his character, but also God's divine plan. Why did Jesus have to come? What did he do in coming? What does he expect of those who follow him? These are all questions that we ought to be asking all the time as we're opening up God's word. So when you begin by saying, you know what, who am I really? What am I like? I'm a sinful being in need of a savior. Who is Jesus? He is the one, the God man come from heaven down to earth, ultimately to go to a cross to pay for my sin so that I could be reconciled back to God. And it's his teaching and it's the word of God breathed out that is that is there for my benefit so that I can grow in Christ's likeness. And the third thing here then is this. Be mindful. Be mindful of the tactics of the enemy. This passage really only reveals, I think, one or two. And I think that the, 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 the key thing here in this passage is the kind of questions that are asked that put you in a place where you're feeling awkward about your answer. Even though you want to be truthful, you know that your yes answer is going to pr produce in other people ridicule because the, the question is stated in such a way to catch you, to make you feel bad, and so that you will not say what you truly believe, which is yes. And so the enemy loves to ask these manipulative questions. They love to pigeonhole. They love to stereotype. They love their unbelief. But behind all of this is this desire to remove Jesus from the marketplace of consideration because when Jesus is considered, then I have to look at what Jesus says. And when I look at what Jesus says, then I'm confronted with my sinfulness. So I want to remove him. I want to deny him. I want to push him out of the way. And if I can use you as an example, and you can implode. Here's a Christian who imploded that it's like, hey, listen, you know what? I, these people really don't believe what they believe. Now, would you rather listen to someone who's wrong and believes what they believe or someone who claims to be right but doesn't even speak or act or think or behave in such a way that they believe it? you probably have a little bit more respect for the person who's wrong and actually passionately believes what they believe. What do you believe? All of, all of these tactics are, are laid out in Scripture for us. As you open a narrative portion of Scripture, whether it's the Gospels in the Old Testament, you go back in the Old Testament, there is story after story after story about the manipulative, deceptive nature of mankind against one another and against God. Right? And you just begin to understand, oh, that's how people are, and that's how people are, that's how I am, and that's how I am here. And you just begin to see from these narratives, this is the tactic of the enemy. Am I going to pay attention to it? As I get to the poetical books where, where character is revealed and warned against, this is what the wise people do, this is what the fool does, this is what the scoffer does, this is what the person who is godly does. And lay it all out there. Then you get to the epistles. 
where specific behaviors are addressed specifically by the writers and counsel is given, Christ-centered, God-centered, proper counsel to help people through those particular troubles in their life. Now, friends, we are blessed to have in the, in the record of God's word Peter's implosion in Jesus's stand before Annas the high priest so that we can have a healthy look at ourselves and recognize that the story for Peter didn't end here. It continues on. And I want to close with one passage of Scripture that I think will be encouraging for us all. Turn to 1 Peter. So guess who's writing this? Peter. Chapter 3. 1 Peter, chapter 3. 1 Peter's toward the end of the New Testament, a little before the book of Revelation. 1 Peter, chapter 3, beginning at verse 13. Peter says, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Let me ask you, was Peter ever zealous for good things? Uh Uh-huh. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. You don't believe that Jesus is God, do you? Peter says what? Always be ready to give an answer for the hope that is in you. You don't really think that the Bible is actually God speaking to you today, do you? Always be ready to give an answer of the hope that is in you. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, (laughs) it's going to be a great day, isn't it? All this, just like all this stuff is happening. Those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to what? Shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. Now, friends, it wasn't a good day for Peter. And when we drift and we fall and we disassociate ourselves, it's not a good day for us. But if we're willing to listen to Jesus in the context of our weakness, in the context of our sin, when it is on display and it's full-blown, and we listen to his counsel and we embrace it, he is building us and he's preparing us for what he has in the future. So much so that Peter later, after this time, many years later, can look back and say, listen, when people ask you a question, you be ready. And you answer in such a way that is gentle, that is gracious. And do it in such a way, not because you're wanting to, but do it in such a way knowing that your faithfulness to the Lord Jesus Christ will be a shame to those who shake their fist at him. It is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. Lord, there are so many things that we could wrestle with with this passage. 
that I feel like, Lord, I have not done justice to. And I just ask that your Holy Spirit would begin to need us with this text. Lord, we live in a context of freedom. And yet, Lord, in the midst of that freedom, we can turn a corner in some kind of a social setting or, uh, Lord, even, even in, in a way that maybe we're just totally unexpected. Lord, just maybe it's at work or maybe it's standing in the line at the grocery store. And, and, and we can be asked questions like the questions we've been looking at today. You don't really believe X, Y, Z, do you? And Lord, it is so easy for us who come to church, who are part of Bible studies, in that moment for all sorts of different reasons to somehow retract and move away from our identity with you and with your people and with your word. And Lord, I ask that you would help us to see our own sinful condition to see our own weakness, Lord, to identify with with Peter here who was so self-sufficient that he couldn't hear what Jesus was saying and his loving warning to him. But, Lord, that we would listen to you. And, Lord, not only that, that we would realize that that, that life is not measured necessarily by that one failure, but it's, it's measured by our trajectory. And, Lord, you still were in Peter's life and you still had much for him to do and you brought him out of that pit, so to speak, Lord, and you set him up and you moved him to be one of the, the, the greatest um, leaders in the early church for your glory. And we thank you, Lord, for that example. And Lord, may it warn us, may it encourage us, may it prepare us. May we be mindful, Lord, that, that we are so very much like him. But Lord, also may we be mindful that you, in that time of, of interrogation, stood firm you did not deny anything that you said. You were very clear. You're very truthful. You're very open. And Lord, we look to you because you are perfection. Lord, you are truthful. You are everything, Lord, that we desire to be. So Lord, help us to pursue you. Help us to follow your example. And Lord, help us now as we can, to live for your glory. We ask this in your precious holy name.